As we start this, we're going to continue uh, in our study of the uh, fourth imperative, to arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. And as we suffer, uh, the, the point of our suffering is that we would cease from sin, and so we're going to talk about that. And we're in, uh, we've looked at the first uh, teaching uh, that supports this imperative, and we looked at that in First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And because of wonderful discussion about how we bless our unbelieving family and friends, we didn't get very far. But that was okay. Uh, that was important that we pray for one another, and we did. And we, <coughs> we would continue to pray for one another as your lost loved ones and family members. But I want to start with verse 13 as we look at the second section of this doctrine, uh, which is going to be uh, suffering for righteousness' sake. I'm going to start in verse 13. I'm going to read through 22, and we'll see how far we get. First uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you do suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And don't be afraid of their threats. Don't be troubled. But set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ would be ashamed. For it's better if it's the will of God to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, by whom he went and preached to the prisoners or spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. This is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. So if we look at verse 13, uh, we're going to title this, We Cannot Be Spiritually Harmed. Now, when the scripture says in verse 13, who is he will harm you if you become followers of what of good, that in no way intimates or or it does not mean that we will not suffer persecution. Christ said we would suffer persecution. He said it was going to happen. No myths, ands, or maybes. We're going to suffer uh, for righteousness' sake. Uh, Peter's going to tell us in verse chapter 4, verse 12, that we're not to consider it strange concerning the trials that we're going to go through. Uh, Peter's already told us in, in 1 Peter 1, 6 that... Uh, that you're going to be trialed by various trials, and we looked at that in great detail. So that's not what he means. Uh, what he means is you cannot be spiritually harmed. <laughs> now, this could very well be a truism. MacArthur says it's a truism, uh, which generally means that uh, you're less likely to suffer if, you beha- if your behavior is exemplary. Uh, the Greek literally means who will do you evil if you are eager to do good. Now, that's a general principle. Uh, unfortunately, that principle is being turned on its head. Uh, now, maybe typically if you're doing good, you're less likely to suffer uh, for doing good. But I think in today's time in which things are backwards 
when sweet is bitter and bitter is sweet and good is evil and evil is good, when it seems like the world is uh, in a rage against Christ, against Christians, against uh, anything that uh, would be moral, anything that would be considered lawful, I think we're going to see and we are seeing uh, this truism becoming less and less true, if you'll let me say that. So while it may be that uh, you're less likely to suffer for doing good, uh, I think that's becoming less and less common. So I think we need to prepare for that. Uh, but what it literally means is you won't suffer spiritual harm, which literally means you're not going to lose your salvation. Uh, we can't be separated from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, according to chapter, of course, Romans chapter 8. And Scripture tells us that we are blessed. That means we are graced by God if we are persecuted for righteousness' sakes. If you'll turn to Romans 5, I believe it's verse 11, if I remember my Beatitudes, uh, which is possible I don't. But let me see, 511, uh, we see this uh, 10 and 11. No, it's 11. Uh, 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you, say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for they persecuted the prophets who went before you. So this phrase, who has harmed you if you become followers or what of good, simply means you will not be spiritually or you will not be permanently harmed. Uh, so that's the teaching on this. Uh, if we follow Christ and his righteousness, we will not be spiritually harmed. Uh, so we understand. And then it tells them, uh, tells us, uh, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And that's just uh, sort of dovetails what I've said. It says, do not be afraid of their threats. Scripture tells us what we're supposed to be afraid of, and, and what is that? Does anybody remember what it tells us in Luke 12, 4 and 5? Uh, Terry preached on this probably been eight weeks ago now about the fear in the Lord. What does it, Scripture tell us that we should be afraid of? Those who can take the soul but not the body. That's right. Don't fear them that can kill the body, but fear him who can kill the body and the soul in hell. So scripture tells us we're to fear one, one, uh, uh, deity, and that's the Lord Jesus and the Father and the spirits. We're to fear them, uh, one person, one, one God, three persons and no one else, uh, Remember, Peter would be intimately familiar with this. Throughout this text of Peter, it's sort of autobiographical. Peter remembers and he says things that would have come from his past. And when he says in verse, uh, uh, do not be afraid of their threats, uh, he would have remembered the threatenings from the Pharisees and from the Sadducees, and he would have been uh, remembering the, the threats from the old, the, from the nation of Israel. He would have been reminded of his denial of Christ when he was asked if he knew the Lord Jesus and he denied probably because of fear. So this is still fresh on Peter's mind as he tells us not to fear those who can do us harm, but to trust the Lord. And so he says, don't be afraid. 
He tells us to set our hearts, sanctify, verse 15, set our hearts on the Lord God. And uh, what that literally means in the Greek is set apart in your hearts Christ as Lord. Having preeminent in your mind as you set your mind on the things of God, as you have this mindset of Christ, have it in your mind and in your heart already settled that Christ is your master and your Lord and you owe him your loyalties and your fidelities. So when you are accosted, when you are challenged, when you are persecuted, that you have already made the decision that Christ is my Lord, he's my priority, and he is my strength, and he's my rock, and you're, you're dependent on him. So Peter just reemphasizes, have your mind already set apart to the Lord God as your master, and that will encourage you. I want to spend a little time on this next thing, and it, uh, I think it's something very important we as Christians need to be, and it's in verse 15. We've said that, set apart the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. That word defense, always be ready to give a defense, the Greek word, is translated in the English language. We get the word apologetics from. So Peter is saying, always be ready to be a good apologetic minister for Christ. And as, and as I remember, Ravi uh, Zacharias, who just passed, known for his apologetics and his understanding of Scripture, and I just want to ask you, and I want to ask me that question. Are you ready to be an apologist for Jesus Christ? Are you, uh, are you able to articulate what you believe about Christ, the Word of God? Are you able to articulate your beliefs humbly, thoughtfully, biblically, and reasonably. That's what it means to be an apologist for Christ. We're not apologizing for Christ, but we are able to explain uh, sincerely and distinctly and clearly what we believe about Jesus Christ. And I just uh, want to challenge you with that today. Are you ready at this present moment to defend the doctrine of Jesus Christ? Can you clearly explain that to folks what your hope is and what you hope in. Are you able to say, uh, for example, what Romans 5 teaches us, that, uh, that, that the love of Christ doesn't disappoint and it has been shed abroad in your hearts and hope leads to perseverance and, and maturity and faith? Are you able to say, take uh, uh, Hebrews 6, are you able to articulate... Uh, the anchor that Christ is for your soul and how sure and, uh, and steadfast it is. And have you laid hold of that hope? And can you articulate that to people? And can you explain to people why your hope is in Christ and why your trust is in Christ? Can you explain to people what it means to be reconciled to God and uh, to have your sins forgiven and condemnation passed over? Just want to challenge you with that. Uh, are you ready to give in a defense to be an apologist?
for Jesus Christ and what you believe. Just want to challenge you with that. Uh, any comments on that? Any anything you'd like to add to that? I, I assume we could spend a lot of time on that. But are you ready to be a Christian apologist? And are you confident? And if you're not, uh, I would challenge you uh, to be ready is to know what God's word says and to understand what it says and to hide that word and meditate on that word uh, to give men a reason for the hope you have. Uh, any comments about that? And we need to do it with meekness and fear. We need we need to do it. Uh, that word meekness means strength under control. So we need to do it positively, confidently, boldly, not ashamed of the gospel, not ashamed of the hope we have. And we need to do it in a spirit of humility. Uh, and we need to do it in a, in, a, in a sense that we are representing and we are ambassadors for Christ. And we want to make sure everything we do say and think is is pleasing to him and it's done in love. So as an apologist, are you ready to do that? Uh, second thing I want to look at here, uh, verse 16, having a good conscience. Uh, that word having a good conscience literally means uh, is uh, uh, be ready to explain what we believe as we do. Profession. Write this down if you're writing things down. Profession without practice carries no weight. So someone who has a good conscience about their explanation of Christ and being a good apologist, uh, and I love what one of my commentators says, it's a, a good conscience is a life free of ongoing and unconfessed sin, lived under command of the Lord, and that is what produces a conscience that is without offense. So examine ourselves. If we'll look at it today, do you have a good conscience? Is your profession accompanied by practice? And is your life characterized by uh, freedom from the dominion of sin? We know sin remains and occasionally pops up, but free from the dominion of sin uh, with a sin that's always confessed up to date with our relationship with Christ and living in obedience to him. And so that's what it means to have a good conscience. And later when we get to verse 21, uh, we, when we're talking about this baptism and what it means and what it doesn't mean, one of the things baptism represents is a good conscience toward Christ as we look at verse 21 later on. But uh, do we have a good conscience toward Christ? Paul testified of this many times about his good conscience uh, if you look with me in Acts, as he's testifying before Felix, before he's going to be brought to Caesar and appeals his uh, case uh, against uh, against uh, against him again for for uh, Caesar. Easy to say. Acts 24, 14 through 26, as he stands before Felix, as he's confessing before Felix, uh, 24, 16 Acts. Uh, 2414 Acts, but this I confess to you, that according to the way in which they call a sect, I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God. You're talking about apologetists, apologists for God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. 
This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. So we see Paul demonstrating a good conscience before men as a good apologist for Christ, that his life is consistent, his sins are confessed up to date, and he is, uh, his life is characterized by obedience and faithfulness. If you'll also look at, uh, uh, Hebrews, uh, 2 Corinthians, uh, another text in which Paul talks about his conscience, 2 Corinthians, uh, chapter, uh, 1, verse 12. Uh, for our boasting is this, 2 Corinthians 1, 12, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the word, in simplicity, and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God toward you. So we see Paul demonstrating a good conscience. And then the uh, primary text on this is, is, is Hebrews 9:14, that our consciences have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ and have been cleansed. So we see this, this thought of a conscience toward God, and that conscience is clear and is free from anxiety and guilt and shame and despair if we are in Christ, and that's the life it produces. So we see this scripture uh, that we need to have a good conscience, we need to be ready to be Christian apologists, and we need to be ready to defend what we believe and why we believe it. And then it just tells us so that we are not ashamed of the gospel. And uh, scripture says that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And we need to know this. It's God's power and salvation to those who believe. And we need to be bold with it. We need to be confident in it, and we need to proclaim it uh, and bless people, as we talked about last week, with it. Uh, now I want to get into, does anybody have any questions about that? I wanted to really uh, free up some time for this difficult text uh, that's coming up. Uh, Terry will appreciate this. You know, Peter spoke to Paul, about Paul and said that his uh, writings were difficult to understand, uh, and I would say of Peter, his writings are sometimes impossible to understand. So I think it's ironic that uh, Peter said Paul's writing was difficult. I would say that this text is uh, is perhaps the most difficult text in all the New Testament. I mean, volumes have written have been written about it. I've read multiple, multiple, multiple commentaries about them, and there is no consensus of of, uh, of agreement on it. Uh, so I want to look at this, especially if we get into verse 19 on. But uh, uh, so, but the point of this, if you don't get anything out of this, it's not just to uh, gain knowledge about what this difficult text means. Uh, Martin Luther said that uh, he says, I admit that I cannot fully comprehend nor exegete this scripture. So if Martin Luther couldn't do it, John <laughs> said he was... It's very difficult to understand, and there's much variance of opinion. Uh, Hybert says it's difficult. Matthew Poole, who was Spurgeon's uh, go-to guy, really struggled with it. So did Matthew Henry and Hodge. So uh, we're in good company if we struggle with this text. But uh, 
as we get into this, uh, I really want you to understand the reason why he wrote this is to encourage the believers. The believers were suffering immense persecution. They were, they were martyred for Christ. They suffered for Christ. And this, this, this section is particularly written to comfort the believers. And it specifically means if Christ suffered for us in the flesh, which he did, for the purpose of becoming our Savior and our Redeemer, and so that we will also suffer in the flesh as he is making us more like himself, and he is, in our suffering, we are ceasing from sin. So with this context, Paul is saying, I mean, Peter is saying, just as Christ suffered for you, he is going to vindicate your life one day. And just as, 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 as Jesus suffered for you to vindicate your life, to rescue your life. And so we as Christians, we look back on this. We look back on this and we're encouraged to. And then what Peter does is he goes back even to the Old Testament to encourage those who seemingly were the only believers that existed. When we talk about Noah here in a minute, Matthew Henry said there were 8 million people on the planet at this time, and 8 people were saved. So Peter is writing to encourage us, the people in his day, and he reflects back to Noah's day, that it may seem like you're the only believers Around You may seem like you are in a minority. Scripture says many are called, few are chosen. And Peter's writing to encourage you that even though you are overwhelmed with wickedness and godlessness, God is going to save you and preserve you. And he looks back at what he did in Noah's day. He looks forward uh, to what he's going to do for us one day. So if, if we look at this, understand The point of this is to show that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient and it will preserve us despite of the worldly situation in which we find ourselves. So uh, be encouraged by that. Let's look at verse 18. For Christ, if you're writing this down, this is going to be Christ's suffering as opposed to our suffering. Uh, Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Verse 18 is not so bad. Uh, for Christ suffered once for us. That simply means that word once is in the aorist. That means that Christ's crucifixion is a one-time event that cannot be repeated in history. Christ died once for sins, uh, as opposed to what the Old Testament uh, believer, uh, Old Testament Jews, that the high priest had to go daily to administer for their own sins and for the sins of the people. And once a year, they went into the Holy of Holies with a rope tied around them so that they had to do it right. They had to approach God the, the only way he had to be approached in which he described how he had to be approached. But Christ suffered once uh, uh, as he died for the sins of his people, as he became their high priests. And so we understand this phrase, he suffered once for sins, 
not daily as a priest did, but he did it one time. This this event cannot be reenacted, nor does it need to be reenacted. He died once for sins. If you'll go back a book in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, we'll look at a couple of verses here. This phrase that Christ uh, came as high, uh, he died once for sins. Uh, Hebrews 7, 26 and uh, 26 through 27. Hebrews 7, 26 through 27. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who doesn't need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. So we see that dovetails what Peter said. And then if you look at Hebrews chapter 9, 26 through 28, Hebrews 9, 26 through 28. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, Christ has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so we see that in verse 27, it's important for men once to die after the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin and for salvation. So we see this phrasing uh, that Christ suffered once for sins. We understand that he did it one time and that was the only time it was necessary and it is final. Uh, the just for the unjust, the next phrase, this is what substitution is. That he who knew no sin became sin for us. He, by his work on the cross, as our substitute, did what we could not do. He lived the perfect sinless life intended for us to live, and he did it, and he was the only one able to do so. And so he secured our salvation by the substitutionary work on the cross. Uh, when it says just for the unjust, that points to his sinlessness as opposed to our sinfulness. Uh, if you read, uh, if you watch television this week, you see this uh, described in the great conflict between believers and unbelievers. Uh, if anybody see what Don Lemon said on CNN, uh, he was talking about Christ. He said Christ never claimed to be perfect. And then uh, actually when he was on the show, uh, Pastor Jeffries, who's a, a pastor in Dallas, he said, this is fake news. He said Christ did claim to be sinless, and he was sinless. So I thought that was funny uh, uh, that Christ's perfect life was defended by Pastor Jeffries on CNN uh, to Don Lemon, who we know is a, a liberal pundit. But he uh he, he called him fake news, and he said, it must be necessary for Christ to be sinless. If he wasn't sinless, he wasn't God. And if he wasn't God, we are still in our sins. So he, he did a great job of a, being an apologist for Christ with a good conscience. And he, and he uh, uh, won the argument, obviously, again. And Don Lemon is sort of, I, 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 and he's sort of backtracked. But uh, just an example of how important it is the doctrine of the holiness and the perfection and the sinlessness of Christ. So we see that he had to be perfect to be a sacrifice for sin. And so why did Christ suffer for us in the flesh? And why did he substitute his life for us? 
the next phrase, why he died, that he might bring us to God. And that word us in the Greek could be you. So let's personalize this. Christ suffered in the flesh one time for you and I as a substitute for our sins that he might bring you to Christ. Put your name in there. He did it that he might bring you to God. That word means uh, bring us to God. This simply means he reconciles us to himself. He brings together two alienated parties that have no way of being joined together. And he is our mediator, uh, reconciled us to the Godhead. So now we have access to God. We are, we are indwelt by God, his spirit, and forever we will always be in God's presence. We have the, we have the privilege and we have the right as adopted sons. Now we are reconciled to God. So that's why he died, that we might be reconciled to him. And also we've talked that we um, may cease from sin. So any comments about these? Great doctrinal statements of Christ's sufferings and why he did it and how he did it before we get into difficult waters. Any comments? Now, starting to get hairy here. Let's look at uh, 18, middle of the verse, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Obviously, we understand that being put to death in the flesh means that he, as a human, died as a human. He uh, was violently put to death. He died as a real human being, and uh, he was fully God and fully man, and this is his humanity that died in, in, at, uh, at the crucifixion. Now, the reason Paul, I mean, Peter explains this this way is because in Peter's day and in John the Apostle's day, there was this doctrine called docetism. And I believe that's pronounced right. If not, you can correct me, Terry. But uh, it basically says that uh, Christ's body wasn't human, but it was either a phantasm or it was a celestial substance. It basically said that Christ wasn't fully human, but he was a phantasm or some kind of celestial being. So Peter says he puts, he's put to death in the flesh. He is silencing the, her, the heresy of the Dostasis. And John was very careful when he, when he said, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, he was, he was clearly saying that Christ is fully God and fully man and that he was fully human with the limitations and the temptations of the flesh. So when Peter says he's put to death in the flesh, he is, he is emphasizing the humanity of Christ, that he was fully human. He had to be fully human to be a representative for us and to be a mediator for us. He had to be able to identify with men to be tempted in all points like we are. And so he had to have a human body as a sacrifice for sin. So uh, so when Peter says he's put to death in the flesh, he is he is emphasizing the humanity of Christ and that Christ really died uh, as a as a man. Now, 
but may love. Yes, sir. What is it that we're covered by? What are we covered by? The blood. Okay. Was there blood running down the cross at the crucifixion? Yes, sir. Like it, like, like, like earthly things, blood. If he didn't, he wasn't human and he wasn't, he was some <laughs> intercelestial being. I don't, there's a spirit bleed. Not that I'm aware of. No, I, I, I'm just trying to put common thought to this. If he Absolutely. wasn't human, and how did he bleed right. and die for us? That's right. How did he, how did his body? I mean, what was it they put in the tomb? That's right. It, you should it, be an apologist against the Dostatists. That's no, very good. I, I'm just trying to think here. Who says that he? I can't believe that somebody wouldn't say that he was not fully human. The tears that ran down his face. Over Lazarus were real tears. That's right. right. That's right. Well, the reason they denied because they want to deny the salvation. They want to deny that he's God and fully man. And 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 John went so far as to say in First John chapter four that that's the spirit of Antichrist. If you don't believe that Jesus has come in the flesh, that's the spirit of Antichrist. And that's yeah. uh, uh, that's uh, so it's a. Uh, it was hera- it was a heresy uh, that was had to be refuted by the early church and the apostles, and it's no well, different than the heresies today. Like Don Lemon saying that he wasn't uh, that he wasn't uh, God and he wasn't sinless. So uh, uh, so uh, good comment. Well, the, without without the blood, there's no remission of sin. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. That's good apologist work. Good. Excellent. Now, let's get to the hairy part. Made alive by the Spirit. Uh, many commentators disagree. Volumes on disagreement. What does this mean? What doesn't it mean? Uh, many will say that made alive by the Spirit. Who has in their Bible Spirit capitalized? Dan, uh, what do you, what yes, version do I you do. I do. I do. Excuse me? What version do you have? I have a life application, a new international version. New international. What do you got, Sally? You're muted. <laughs> You're still muted. We have, I have the NIV. NIV. <laughs> Who else has a version that's S is capitalized? New King James has S capitalized. MacArthur says this is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. Uh, Matthew Poole says this is not a reference to the Holy Spirit. John Calvin says it's a mixture. And so this is a, this is a very important that we understand this because when it says He's made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. It's really important we understand this, uh, because if we don't understand this, we're going to run into two great errors. Uh, so uh, uh, by the Spirit, uh, I believe, means that he has 
he has a body and a soul like all of us do. We all have bodies and spirits. This word made alive by the spirit, according to the consensus of conservative commentators, uh, say that this is differentiates the 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 uh, the uh, resurrected Christ from the uh, dead Christ. So we see here. Let's, let me explain this. Made alive by the spirit. As they explain it, this is very difficult. Bear with me. I expect lots of comments. Before the resurrection in Christ's body, he was limited in his space. He was limited. Uh, he, he suffered. He hungered. He said he cried. He had emotions. Uh, but in his resurrected body, he was not limited by space. He was not subject. He was not subjected to uh, to uh, limitations before his pre-resurrected body. He could move in and out of space. He could go from place to place, and uh, his body uh, was no longer susceptible to death. It was uh, now immortal. And so what commentators try to say is this, the contrast being put to death in the flesh, being laid by the spirit, is that just as we have a body and a spirit, Christ has a body and a spirit, but his, but his, but his spirit after his resurrection is different than his spirit before the resurrection. And I, and so that's the explanation. So it's, uh, it, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to try to explain this, and I'm going to go the uh, the route that most conservative commentators go. MacArthur goes this route. Uh, a commentator that Terry gave me, the Ebert goes this route. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. This is the resurrected body of Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 45. Matter of fact, what I've just said, uh, I will sum up. Uh, let's look at verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead, the body sown in corruption, raised in corruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. And then verse 45, and so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, of course, is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. And so the thinking is that Christ, uh, in his resurrected body, that uh, that is going to be different than his pre-resurrected body, as ours will be different. Any comments or questions about that so far? So we talked about this in John. Uh, there are three persons in the Trinity. Everybody agrees, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But post-resurrection Jesus... Sometimes his his life he is called Christ's spirit. So practically, practically, sometimes it's hard to differentiate between the Holy Spirit and Christ's resurrected spirit, and it's called Christ's spirit. So we talked about this in in uh, in the book of uh, in John. So 
in an effort to explain this, I think commentators have tried to differentiate the resurrected Christ from the uh, before he was died, before he died, was buried, and was resurrected. So I think that's the understanding they're trying to do. And then in many verses uh, that, that we looked at, uh, but look at Romans 8 to, to differentiate how Christ is spoken of after resurrection and how it's practically, practically, there's still three persons, but practically there doesn't seem to be a lot of difference between the uh, Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ. Look at Romans 8. Romans 8. Uh, look at verse uh, 10. Romans 8.10, and if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there seems to be a a practical uh, it's difficult to differentiate between the Holy Spirit and Christ's Spirit post-resurrection. So what they're trying to explain is, is what happened between Christ's death and resurrection. And so both the, the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasians' Creed say that Christ descended into hell. And that has been a common thought that comes from our early father forefathers. So they're trying, when they're using spirit, they're trying to explain what happened between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And they like to, and they will explain it that Christ's resurrected spirit preached to the prisoners uh, the unbelieving prisoner. So, uh, just sort of give you a, a, uh, a, uh, a start to this difficult text. Uh, the key is, uh, there are five keys. We got to look at this, uh, and gosh, my gosh, time. Uh, what does it mean when he, he went and preached? Uh, let me tell you two things that does not, what it does not mean. And then obviously, uh, time is already over. It does not mean that there is a second chance. Catholics take this verse to believe that there's a second chance after death. And they say that Christ went and preached to the spirits. They, they use the word preached, evangelizo, which means preach the good news. That is not the word used here. When, when Peter says he went and preached, he uses the word caruso, which means herald. to herald or proclaim. And he, what Jesus did wherever he went and however he went, he proclaimed his victory over death. He did not preach the gospel to them so that they may be saved after they had died, but he heralded, he proclaimed his victory over sin, and there is not, this does not teach that there is a chance to be saved after you're dead. Everybody understand that? 
That does not mean that. When Christ preached to the spirits in prison, he proclaimed his victory over evil. But he did not offer salvation to them. Scripture teaches it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. There's not a second chance after death. So this is not taught by this text. This is a preaching, proclaiming victory over evil when he triumphed over death and he accomplished salvation for his people. And he proclaimed it to those who had already died and were in a holding confinement. Scripture calls Hades, Sheol. Uh, the Greeks called it Tartusa. Uh, just a place uh, before men gets their, get their bodies. Uh, but Christ heralded his victory over evil, and that's what it means. He preached to the prison. He preached to the uh, spirits in prisons. Uh, in prison. Any comments about that before we... Uh, obviously can't finish this. And we'll talk about how did he go? Did he go in body and spirit? Did he really descend into hell? And we're going to talk about the four different viewpoints on that. And uh, any comments about this difficult text so far? Don? Yes, ma'am. That verse uh, in chapter 8 of Romans. Yes. If we're going to talk about capitalizing the word yes. spirit in First yes. Peter, yes. what about in the verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you? It is capitalized he, in Romans, isn't it? Yes, it certainly is. Yes. And then it says, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body. We're talking about the Holy Spirit there. Yes, yes. And so the verse is almost, you know, who is the one in the Trinity who is acting for uh, bringing Christ up from the dead? It's well, the it's, Holy Spirit. It says if the Holy Spirit is said to do it, God yes. is said to have done it, and Christ is said to right. have done it. So there's really hard to differentiate. Uh, they were all uh, working to raise Christ from the dead. Other verses say Christ raised himself from the dead. Other verses says that God raised him from the dead. And then that verse says the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. They're all in unity and harmony, right? Right. Right. So uh, the point is that this is very difficult text. And for 2,000 years, godly men who know more than Don Dittrich cannot explain it. So how am I supposed to explain it on a video screen in 15 minutes? The answer is I cannot. Fortunately, it's not a prerequisite to be an elder or a pastor. You just don't know what this means. Uh, but we do know it means that Christ did not offer the gospel to dead people. There is not a second chance. There's not a purgatory. He proclaimed his victory over evil, but he did not preach the gospel to them so that they could, after they're dead, be saved. That does not mean that. Okay? So uh, if you don't remember anything I said, remember that it does not teach a second chance. And later as we get into this, it seems like they're talking about baptism saves he does not say baptism saves, and we're going to get into that in great detail next week. We're going to get into what the prison is. What does it mean, those who were formerly 
disobedient. We're going to finish this next week, and I thought I could finish it today, but I was obviously deceiving myself. But uh, Hey, there's a good picture of what maybe they're talking about in Luke 16, of course. Yes. Lazarus and the rich man. The parable of Lazarus the parable. and the rich man. That there's a chasm fixed between. Uh, Sally talked about that last week as we talked about blessing our unbelievers. And she talked about the chasm that exists between uh, believers and unbelievers and the ability to come to Christ. And uh, so we talked about that last week. But uh, uh, if you would read this again, if you want to look at all the various opinions, uh, feel free. Uh, and I will try to make it uh, clearer uh, than, than before, uh, but we're definitely going to prove the heresies of second chance does not exist in the Scripture, and that does not uh, is not what he's talking about here. Uh, let me finish in prayer. I'm already late. I know we got to run to get to church. Uh, uh, let's pray, and uh, we'll finish this next week. Father, your word is difficult, and... Uh, for people like me, lay people, uh, it's difficult. And it's difficult for the godliest of men who are trained and have many letters after their name. So I thank you that we know enough from the text to know that uh, your scripture is consistent and that, uh, and that what you teach in one part of scripture does not contradict what you teach in another part of scripture. Give us wisdom to know uh, what the truth is in this text and to apply this text to our own hearts that you are going to vindicate your people just as you did in Noah's day, just as you did in Peter's day. You're going to do in our day and you are going to finally and forever save us and vindicate us, uh, despite of the godlessness and chaos that we live in. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you died once for us. That you substituted your perfect sinless life for ours and that we can have great hope. Help us to be ready to give a reason for the hope that was within us and help us to be faithful to you. In your name we pray. Amen.